Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 2, Episode 8, Return to Oz. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I'm Mitz. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, that's awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre and all are welcome. And uh, before we get to Return to Oz, we're going to go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe? All right, so Return to Oz. Uh, We've done a few children's horror or potential children's horror uh, movies, and this question comes straight from the desk of our very own Steve. So, with the recent trend of remaking children's films into horror films, such as Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, and The Mean Ones, what children's movie would you like to see as a horror movie? I thought that was a great question, and I came up with a couple potentials. I was trying to think back to like, uh, like movies I liked as a kid or watched a bunch with my family, with my siblings and things. And two that came to mind were Flubber. Uh, mm. And I thought, yeah, like Flubber could be kind of a whole like Frankenstein reimagining thing, but you could go dark with it. And like, and you could have like Flubber kind of, you know, getting a little more self-aware and maybe like, I don't know, getting inside of people and then expanding and exploding and crap like oh, that. I don't dark. know. It could be. Right. <laughs> so that could be a good one. The other one, uh, now the name of the movie has just skipped my mind. Uh, it's the one, uh, the like, there's the fairy in the forest and the loggers are coming in. Ferngully. Yeah, there it is. Thank you. Ferngully. Um, there's some creepy things to that, but I, I don't know, could be interesting and, I don't know, clop- topical for... Uh, climate change and such. Um, but anyways, those are the two I came up with. Uh, I was thinking that you could do Toy Story and that Toy Story would make a really good horror film. Oh, he took mine. Continue. <laughs> Beat your ass. <laughs> it could be like, you could go a couple of different ways. You could make the toys horrible monsters or you could actually like turn it into like Sid is the is the horror antagonist in it and like get really dark with it darker than obviously the original film so yeah you could definitely go a bunch of a couple of ways but yeah I think it lends itself to the horror genre and I guess for my part because I was thinking of that one too is I know that there are a lot of evil toy movies. You've got Child's Play, you've got the Puppet Master series, you've got Annabelle as some, you know, in people's consciousness versions of that. But at least for me, when I was thinking about it, I would want it in exactly that same animation style in exactly, but still in that universe. Like you could have good toys and bad toys. Maybe the bad toys are trying to kill the children and the good toys have to stop them and just have it be gory as hell. He could, like, human centipede the toys or toy centipede the toys. Because he likes to take them apart and put them back together and things. You could really go some, like, fucked up directions with it. (laughs) Yeah. 
oh, you could explore too how they know that they can be alive and what they how they know what the rules are. Maybe there could be some sort of like strange dark god controlling all of it for some reason. Oh man, so much potential. And then they're like risking the wrath of the strange dark god by like doing the things they're doing. Yeah. You could even go into like maybe when people die, they're reincarnated as toys. So you could, I mean, Ew. this is kind of the plot of Child's <laughs> Play, right? But you could have like a murderer or a serial killer be reincarnated as one of Andy's toys. Like they find out in the afterlife that they're going down to be toys. That's when they find out what the rules are. Yeah. And then like that, this toy is reincarnated in Andy's room. And they start slowly realizing that it's a serial killer trying to murder Andy. <laughs> oh, and then Sid could figure out, like, he could die at the end, but then realize that he's going to get turned into a toy. Oof. Oh, that'd oh, be good. That would... And he actually comes back as the baby head spider. Ooh. <laughs> That's your after credit stinger. We'd be like, no! Like his little scream that he does. Man, that would be a surprise ending. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had a few ideas of movies that were already bordering on horror, but I didn't pick any of those. Instead, I thought a good one to make into horror would be Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Because there's some weird stuff that happens in that movie already. And I think it would be heightened by like you know they're stuck in the chocolate factory and they have to get out but they keep getting killed by all these gruesome deaths like falling into a chocolate river i think that would work well and really deal with the implications of all those things like having to juice the girl later or see where the bad eggs go it's like the same movie except they don't have happy endings like you know the guy actually just dies in the river and the girl explodes from being a blueberry yeah and also also i think the the oompa are cannibals also (laughs) (laughs) makes sense and the kid on the tv instead of just being miniaturized think teleportation teleporter accident you know like galaxy quest or something like that (laughs) gets turned inside out and exploded (laughs) But I also think that the Oompa Loompa should still sing. Like, it should still be a musical. Oh, yeah. (laughs) After they die, Oompa Loompa. They finish singing, and then they immediately just go and feast on the remains. (laughs) That would be horror comedy. Oompa dee doo will murder you and eat your entrails, too. (laughs) And when Charlie goes up with with Uncle Joe to, like, you know... They have the burping gas or whatever when they're eating that stuff that makes them fly. They actually, like, go into the fan and die. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Saw. It's almost like Saw. Because that's what Willy Wonka... That's what the movie even really was. It's like Saw for children. Yeah, just imagine, like, every everybody gets sprayed with blood when they fly up in the fan. Man, that'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I had... I had a couple different answers, but now I have a new answer based on that. So I want to see people have made the joke before in sort of the head canon that Home Alone 
and Saw are the same universe and that Jigsaw is actually Kevin McAllister when he's a kid. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so I want to see, we'll get, get Macaulay Culkin. You can even digitally de-age him. That's fine by me. And uh, he can like play that transition film where Home Alone turns into the Saw series and just watch him slowly, like a psychological thriller, like watching him get darker and darker and then just like hacking people up and finding that he really enjoys doing that through these different means. That would, I don't know. That would be kind of great. <laughs> that would be good. Origin story of Jigsaw. And then other than that, the other one I was thinking of is, I guess what we've discussed before is just the idea of um, committing to making Coraline an out-and-out adult horror film. But again, same thing as I said with the mention of Toy Story is keep the animation style the same and everything and even get back like the same cast and everything and just do it again, but have it be a dark, gory adult horror film. For all the fans that who've grown up with Coraline, now that they can watch this as an adult. That could be good. Yeah, I think that would be pretty fright frightening. Very, very frightening me. Galileo. Galileo. Cool. Well, let's uh, get some of these greenlit and get them happening. Send us our check, please, Hollywood. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, well, the movie that we're doing today is the 1985 classic, in my opinion anyway, Return to Oz. Um, Return to Oz is based on the Oz novels by L. Frank Baum. Uh, primarily, it adapts the second and third volume, the second volume being The Marvelous Land of Oz and the third being Ozma of Oz. L. Frank Baum actually wrote 14 different Oz books and also seven Oz plays, some of which were adaptations of his books, and some of which were original works that were later adapted into his books. That's something that I always kind of find a little bit surprising is because you, you know, everyone's familiar for the most part with 1939 Wizard of Oz, but you look at the source material and just realize that there are a lot of stories that he wrote about this land. So there's a lot of different places you could go with it. So anyway, Return to Oz, the film itself, was directed and co-written by Walter Murch. And he is an Academy Award-winning sound designer and film editor. He, was, he won the uh, Best Film Editing for the English Patient and Best Sound Editing also for the English Patient, as well as Apocalypse Now. Uh, he served as a sound designer and or editor on films like The Godfathers, Series 1, 2, and 3, on Ghost. Uh, he worked with George Lucas on THX 1138, even co-wrote that. Uh, he helped on American Graffiti as well, Cold Mountain, Jarhead. So he's very critically acclaimed sound designer that a lot of people look to in the field as like the gold standard, especially during this time period when he was working on films. But at present, Return to Oz is the only feature film directing credit that he has to his name. Uh, the co-writer on this film was Gil Dennis, and he also wrote Walk the Line. So that was the uh, Johnny Cash story that starred Joaquin Phoenix. And uh, the back of the box description for Return to Oz is, A shooting star jumpstarts Dorothy's second visit to the land of her dreams. But something is wrong. The yellow brick road is in ruins, the Emerald City has lost its luster, and her old companions desperately need her help. 
So begins an extraordinary adventure for Dorothy and her now-talking hen, Belina, as they make delightful new friends, TikTok, Jack, Pumpkinhead, and the Gump, and face off against dangerous new enemies, Wicked Princess Mombi and the evil Gnome King. Sparkling with magical surprises and thrills galore, Return to Oz is a fun, remarkable journey your family will take again and again. And then the narrator kicks in. But they didn't, unfortunately. <laughs> so there is a really extensive interview that was done through the YouTube channel Web of Stories, Life Stories of Remarkable People, with Walter Murch, where he kind of talks all about this film. And so one of the things that was really sort of a blessing for doing this episode is that he basically breaks down why people look at Return to Oz as a scary film. And so he kind of gave us our talking points in this through that interview of all the reasons why he thinks that people perceive it as a horror film or not a horror film. So a lot of what we go through for this episode is going to be basically looking at quotes from him for each of the things that he thinks influence that perception of this film. And we're going to kind of basically respond to all of those and decide whether we think that works or they don't work. Um, I would really encourage anybody, honestly, to go listen to that interview. He has a lot of interesting things to say about the film. There's a lot of interesting facts, um, things like him getting fired and George Lucas stepping in because they were friends and basically getting him rehired again and saying if it didn't go the way the studio wanted, then he would step in and direct. So kind of putting himself up as collateral. Uh, other interesting details is this was made by Disney because they happened to own the rights to the uh, Wizard of Oz franchise since the 60s. And uh, it was kind of just kismet that they approached Walter Murch about making a film and he wanted to do Oz and they just happened to own the rights. But this also happened about the same time as they were doing The Black Cauldron. So they were dealing with this whole, the whole uh, Eisner and Katzenberg takeover of Disney. So that had some influence on the background of what was going on with this film. So I don't know. There's it was It's interesting to see the interview with him and hear some of those stories happen in the background and how it kind of connects up with both Willow and the Black Cauldron that we've already talked about this season. So definitely worth a listen. As far as the meta tags for this film goes, we had uh, seven people, seven different sites tagged this as adventure, six different ones tagged it as fantasy, five tagged it as a family film, four as action, three as a kid's film, and... Uh, one as dark fantasy and Amazon Prime labeled it as horror. So there's at least some precedent for a streaming service looking at it as horror and labeling it as such. Uh, the other thing that I tried to look into that I usually do whenever we're doing something that's based on a series of books is to go check out the website Goodreads, which allows users to basically label a book whatever genre they think it is. And I couldn't find any instance of anyone describing these first three books, The Wizard of Oz, The Marvelous Land of Oz, and Ozma of Oz, I couldn't find any instance where anyone labeled any of those three books horror. And similarly, looking at Google search trends, uh, this doesn't get any kind of bump in October that you see with a lot of horror films. And then we'll go into more quotes from Walter Merch in a second, but uh, before we go any further, 
how did everyone land on this? Is Return to Oz horror? So for me, uh, this was the first time I'd ever seen it. Uh, I don't think I can call it horror, but I would go with children's horror. I think it works for that. So um, children's horror. Yeah, I think I'm going to agree that I definitely think this could fall under children's horror. Uh, maybe even like the whole first act, possibly up until the first scene with the wheelers is over. It's if you ended it there, it probably was is almost a horror film there. So, yeah, that's my opinion right now. Um, before I give my answer, I want to preface it by saying I find this movie unsettling and scary at this old age. But I don't think it's horror. I think it's dark fantasy. Still scary to me. I really went back and forth on this one. Um, I did grow up watching it quite a bit as a kid, or at least I feel like I watched it quite a bit as a kid. And uh, I think that I would be willing to say children's horror on this one as well. Okay. As I said, we had that interview that uh, we were looking at from Web of Stories with Walter Murch. And the first quote that I had from him in regard to that, he's just talking about the film in general. He said, I was surprised. I was a little discombobulated by the fact that when the film came out, people said, this is an extremely terrifying, disturbing film which was not my intention. I wanted it to engage the audience fully, and I wanted Dorothy to be in a desperate situation. But the anguish of many of the reviews and some of the comments that I got from the film were was surprising to me. And I'm still thinking about it, and I have some ideas now after 30 years of why that might have been. So, and then he also said, and yet in the irrationality of the reviewing process, I guess, you can't second guess the reviewer, and that's what they say. And in fact, that was the brush that teared the film. That it was that teared the film, tarred the film, tarred, tarred the film. That it was an overly dour and frightening film for children, and that I was some kind of molester of children because of the film. The screaming kids leaving the theater. Before kind of getting knee deep in this film. I wanted to see, I figured this is probably the case. First off, has everyone here seen the 1939 Wizard of Oz film? Yes. Yes. Many times. Okay. Has anyone ever thought of that film as horror? No. I remember feeling like there's some unsettling parts to it, but no, I never thought it was horror. I never was that scared of it. Yeah, I definitely think the tone of the original Wizard of Oz is, is wildly different to the tone of this film. Uh, definitely more in the musical, happy-go-lucky and family environment than this film. And a lot of what Walter Murch has to say is kind of comparing this film to the 1939 film. And obviously, there's a lot of dark rumors surrounding the production of The Wizard of Oz, like the idea that maybe you can see someone hanging themselves in the background of one of the scenes and stuff like that. But as far as what's on screen, I mean, there are those 
weird moments within it maybe, but for the most part, the tone is quite happy-go-lucky. Um, the other thing I guess I thought was worth saying before going into the next question is that this film actually reminds me a lot of Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep. And the reason why is that he, in this modern, more modern setting, faces the exact same challenges that Walter Murch did with this one, which is basically there's a series of books, there's already a beloved film that everyone regards as sacrosanct that came out based on the first book, and now you're having to make a film sequel that serves as both a sequel to the movie people have already seen, but is also trying to be more faithful to the books that exist. So it's just interesting to me the parallels in the shining Dr. Sleep relationship that you have with this with Wizard of Oz and Return to Oz. So I guess the other thing that I wanted to see is if anyone here had read any of the Return, any of, if one had read any of the Wizard of Oz books. Not me. I probably read the original Wizard of Oz as a kid. I can't remember feeling scared of it. I think I would have remembered. I haven't read any of them, but independently, I was going to say that this film actually does feel very much like something Stephen King would write. Uh, it feels very similar to like Dark Tower and the kind of scope or if anybody has read one of Stephen King's most uh, latest novels called Fairy Tale. It's like very similar to Fairy Tale is very similar to this, I should say. Uh, so yeah, it's very Stephen Kingy, although I haven't read any of the original novels to compare and contrast. But what I saw on film here uh, could have been written by Stephen King. I think that's interesting, too, because I think we've mentioned before that there's a few of us here that are big Dark Tower fans. And the Dark Tower series heavily references the Wizard of Oz, especially in book four, where they have heavy references to it. I was thinking to myself about spoiling it, but you know what? I'm not going to. Read the Dark Tower series. You'll get to the fourth book. You won't have to ask yourself, I wonder when it's going to reference this. You will know. You will know when it references this. <laughs> and having, uh, having not seen this movie before or really knowing a lot about it, <clears throat> Uh, when like TikTok comes up, like all I could think about was the TikTok man. Yeah, I you know I hadn't considered that, but maybe that's intentional too. So yeah, yeah. And then when she when she's in the field at the beginning, I was like, did a chum, did a chi? We found the key. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. And uh, at least for my, I read the original Wizard of Oz when I was younger, and then I reread the first three books for this. The thing that's kind of nice about them, too, for anyone who's interested, is that they are all in the public domain at this point, which means that you can get access to all of them for free, both in print or, you know, on uh, online, as well as audiobook versions of them. Uh, I think it's LibraVox or LibraVox, I think is what they're called, but they, I think, have the entire series in audiobook on Spotify if you wanted to listen to them that way. And you can listen to at least the first one for free through Audible. So there's a lot of ways that you can access these to check them out. And they're usually about like four hours a pop is what it seems like. So anyway, a lot of ways to enjoy them and check out the series. 
Uh, I didn't really think that they necessarily were horrific. They're horrific in the way that fairy tales are sometimes horrific. So there's moments that you can describe in a book that you couldn't get away with. Like, for instance, in the original Wizard of Oz, uh, the Wicked Witch sends a bunch of wolves after them when they're coming to get her and the tin woodsman cuts off like 40 wolves heads. So there's just like a pack of headless dead wolves around where they are. So it's just like one of those moments where of course that doesn't happen in the movie and how could it, but it's extremely gory if you think about it, but in the book they just get away with describing it real quick and then you just walk away from it and don't have to think about it anymore. So there's a lot of little moments like that throughout the series where some deeply horrific things are mentioned as they do in fairy tales. And then they're forgotten the moment you're, you know, you're away from that moment. But anyway, let's get into some of these Walter Murch quotes and talk about some of what he has to say with it. Uh, so Walter says uh, on the musical tone of the films, he says, one of them is simply, it isn't a musical. And when there is something that has scary things in it, but there's also singing. The singing says, this isn't so bad. It's just a show. And we didn't, and we didn't have songs. Okay. So obviously he's talking about the differences again, between his film and the 39 film. And so I wanted to see, would the tone have shifted for anyone here? If we had, if there had been music in it, if we'd done musical situation, same as the 39 film, would that have made it really obviously not horror or horror for anyone here? Obviously, we've talked about horror and musicals before and that that can be a little more difficult to pull off. I think that's a really interesting quote. Uh, and I think it is harder for musicals to be horror. I mean, like you said, Steve, we've talked about it already, but uh, it's just uh, I, I think he's right on point with that. Like as soon as like singing starts happening, all this, all this stuff around it is somehow uh, dampened a little bit, I guess. And I think, I, I don't know, I guess thinking about whether if they put songs into this, how I would feel differently about it. I, I don't know that my vote would have changed. I th still think I would be in the like realm of children's horror, but it, I, I don't know. It doesn't, it didn't get past that just straight horror bar for me anyways, I guess. I was just thinking like, for example, if the wheelers were introduced in like a song and dance number rather than how they are introduced, uh, I think that definitely would have softened the blow. Cause I would think, I think I'm not alone in saying that, the wheelers is one of the more uh, disconcerting kind of things about the film. Uh, so yeah, if you had them introduce themselves with a little song and dance, definitely it would be less horror. That's true. Like when you first see them and like the ones like creeps, like pokes its head up over the wall and it's just like the mask. Like if you mm -hmm. put music to that, then it'd be a whole different feel. I would have liked to see a synchronized dance though. <laughs> <laughs> with the wheelers they were actually like really good on those things <laughs> it was interesting it kind of looked fun yeah seeing some of the behind the scenes stuff where they kind of have um you know the different apparatus without all the covering over top of it and how they had to figure out how to use them that was kind of that was kind of interesting to see just the visual of it but it's funny too because in 
Ozma of Oz, basically the way that it works is the third book, Ozma of Oz, provides the framework for this movie, where they go, who they meet, for the most part. And then they cherry pick some characters out of the second book, The Marvelous Land of Oz. But in any case, so in this, the third book, TikTok has the same encounter with the Wheelers. But the funny thing about it is that he basically, he grabs one of them and he lays out is like, you guys are pretending to be so intimidating, but I know that you're just straight up bitches because all you have is wheels for feet and hands. What the hell are you going to do to us if you got us? And they're kind of like, you're right. We couldn't do anything. We could really hurt you. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, as far as the musical side of it goes, that, yeah, I I agree with what everyone said. I was a little on the fence about putting this in the children's horror category, but if they had thrown music into this, then it would have been a lot easier to to not even see it in that vein anymore, to just say that this is this is a kid's movie, there isn't anything horrible about it, there's no horror side of it at all. I think it would have taken... If you put the exact same film with just music, musical elements in it, I think that would immediately shift it out of that category for me. Mm-hmm. All right. So... What Mr. Merch has to say about the design of the movie, he said. And then the basic of much of the action in Oz looks like a vaudeville show. There are painted sets, and they're clearly painted sets. We're not trying to fool anyone. This is paint. And so that adds another element where you think, oh, this is a theater. And if I want, I can get up and leave at any time because it's just a theater. Whereas a film that has a real raging river and the girls really fall into the river, it looks real. I mean, it's all a set and it's very artfully done, but it's convincingly real. And that's a real house and that's a real doctor who's attaching real electrodes to Dorothy. You know, that's also different. Okay, so one of the things that he talked about outside of just that quote, but throughout his interview was the idea that he was striving for a more realistic tone to the Kansas area before we ever get to... Oz, and even in Oz, that there is a little bit more of a grounded in reality tone to the film. So I wanted to see, did you think there was a more realistic quality to the production? Did he succeed in that? I definitely think so. I I guess I'm not sure. Is that a product of intent or a product of the time period? Um, I mean, either way, it still has the same effect, I guess. But uh but yeah, it definitely does feel more more real. I think what he meant by the quote, though, was that when they're in Oz, it, Oz, it doesn't look real. It looks like a set. In the 39 film. Sorry, I think that's what he was getting at. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think he was getting at the original film. You have these painted sets and things like right. that that make it right. real. No, I, I, I get what you're saying now. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with with that. Um, especially like you, if you ever look at interviews about the original Wizard of Oz, a lot of it was basically to show off that they were using Technicolor, and so they have these the bright yellow brick road and Dorothy's bright red ruby slippers and her lips and all that stuff. Uh, so that film was like almost especially made to show off that particular thing of like, hey, we've got color in our movie. (laughs) Uh, It even goes from black and white to color during the movie, 
right? So um, this movie definitely gives it a more real tone where you don't feel like they're on this fanciful set. It's, you know, even the like matte painting backgrounds look a lot more real than uh, the original film. And then even when they show the the faraway shots of Oz at the end, um, it looks more like Vegas than a city made of emeralds, you know? I think now that I remember the original Wizard of Oz movie, the 39 version, the 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 way it was filmed also exactly like you said was like directly on. Like you're watching it on stage almost. It always had the same exact shot every time. Like the full landscape pretty much. But this film has like dimension, which makes it also feel more real, I feel like. Yeah, it's like fixed camera versus multiple camera viewpoints. So did that realistic tone or that attempt at a realistic tone lend itself towards your assessment of it being horror or not? I think so. I think it would have been a lot scary or a lot less scary to just watch this happening in stage form. I still kind of stick with what I said on the last episode, how I think this setting and tone were far enough removed from what we know to be reality that it was hard for me to categorize this as straight horror because like, I'm just not afraid of in general of what's going to happen because of how unrelatable the setting is to me, but it's definitely a lot more relatable than the 1939 version. So yes, in a way the real, the realism does add to the, to the scariness and the relatability of it. Uh, But I also don't think it was his intent for that to make it scary. It was more just to, immerse you in the film i guess a little bit more what about the beginning you go ahead because i was going to ask the same thing you were go for it i was going to say well how do you know (laughs) uh i was going to say what about the beginning of the film where it is not set in oz it is set in reality and i find the beginning of the film to be also kind of terrifying that was what i was going to ask oh nice great minds think alike and if you reference my comments from the beginning of the episode, I <laughs> I mentioned how I felt the how I felt like the first the first act of the film was more horror than anything else to me. Like in that hospital and the yeah. foreboding there, it was like the start. It was very much like the start of a horror movie, hundred uh, percent. So I felt per my previous email, per my previous email, <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Do you guys think if the original Wizard of Oz was made at the time, like if it wasn't made in 39, it was made in whatever year this one was made in? Shoot. Uh, 85. 85, thank you. Uh, Would it have felt the same, do you think? Or would they still have gone for the more like lighthearted musical tone type thing? I think that, all right, so first off, I at least want to make the point that the whole reason that Walter Murch is going through and having all these quotes about it is because of his own incredulity that people saw the movie as scary. 
as maybe something that is horror because that wasn't his intent. So despite the fact that we're exploring what he's saying about the film, it's not because his intent was to make a film that was perceived this way. It's more him ruminating after so many years as to why people came across that way and him having to decide for himself if he thinks that's also the case, which is just really fascinating to kind of see his side of it. Um, I think in terms of if they made the first film at the same time as this, and there had never been another film, I think that one, there were stage plays. And I think that in the 39 film, some of those things were still fresh in people's minds. It was like, Hey, remember 30 years ago when they did that stage play. So I think there was already a precedent for the kind of tone that a stage film should have. And I think that was maybe at least part of what they were thinking about. So if we ax those two, say there's no adaptation of this ever before we get to 85, I think that you maybe wouldn't end up with a film quite as dark as this. But again, I think there are implied dark elements in the stories that just didn't get get put together. I think it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for it to end up feeling like maybe some of Disney's intentionally or not darker moments, darker fare. I think that's the kind of thing that you might have ended up with. I think that Walter Murch's thought process on this and his interpretation of it took it a little bit darker than maybe the source material even has because the intro of how Dorothy gets to Oz in this film again is different from the book in the book she's on a ship with her uncle to visit some relatives in Australia and there's a storm and she gets knocked off the ship there's nothing about a little girl not being grounded in reality being taken to this creepy as hell psychologist to have electroshock therapy with the illusion of people it didn't work on being kept hidden in the basement like all of that is his creation to this it wasn't something that existed in the original book so i think that he took it to a darker tone than probably would have been if the 39 film was made at this time with no other adaptations to lean on what if he was the one to make it, though? Just kidding, you don't have to answer that. I would love to watch that film. If he somehow got money to make a prequel to this film that's just a remake of The Wizard of Oz, I would watch the hell out of that. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. I would also make a modern... I would also watch a modern reboot of this movie. I think it would be less scary, though. Because I think it part of the horror is that it was just like... The aesthetics of the movie is just, you know, unsettling because of its age. It had kind of a similar feel to, like, uh, I don't think they did use stop motion, or maybe they probably used a little stop motion for some parts, but it it gave me that same kind of impression where it's just, like, the way things moved, the way things felt, gave it that little just off-kilter feel to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Can I say it was I felt like it was a very weird choice how they presented the Jack uh pumpkin what is his name Jack <laughs> His name's Jack, Jack Pumpkinhead. Right? Yeah, it was weird how they presented Jack Pumpkinhead because you could tell sometimes it was a guy in a suit and other times it was like a marionette superimposed over the scene. It was just kind of, it was, it just felt weird to me how they portrayed, how they chose to do him. (laughs) Like weird in a creepy way or just weird from a special effects perspective. 
I guess weird from a special effects perspective more than anything because I was like sometimes there's definitely a guy in a suit uh like I said it was like he looked different when it was the guy in the suit because he had no neck when it was the guy in the suit and then he had a long stick neck when he was the marionette (laughs) okay well let's talk a little bit further about the world of Return to Oz and so we've got another couple quotes here from Walter and it's uh and it's a scary world when she gets to Oz there are scary things that happen and there aren't very many cuddly things and the gnomes are scary and Mombi the witch is scary particularly because she has the ability to change heads at will depending on how she feels I'm going to use this head today so all right with that quote in mind would you agree that this is a scarier world than say the 39 film uh, for those that thought it was horror, is the tone of the world part of what put you there? For those that didn't say it was horror, did you not feel like it was a particularly scary world? I didn't say it was horror, but I found the world scary. I found the world definitely scary than the original, scarier than the original iteration of Oz. And a lot of times I was telling Matt as we were watching it that it reminded me of a Dark Souls world, like... It was just dark. There was strange mobs lurking around the corner ready to jump me that looked like nothing I've ever seen before, like the wheelers or even TikTok a little bit. And, you know, there was just, you know, large looming creatures like the Gnome King as a boss fight. I just, it was very dark feeling. It felt very ominous yep yeah the (laughs) the like post-apocalyptic like i don't know just feel to it definitely has that and you know walking around oz with all the all the statue people and then like one of the things that i was thinking about watching this that it was like well this is this is a kid's movie this at best or well at at its most horror, it's a children's horror, um, was like you get the statues like laying on the ground in in shattered pieces or the like circle of headless dancing statues. Like if this was a horror movie, if they came back to life, they wouldn't be getting their nice little heads back. Like, (laughs) you know, or, you know, the statue would be like just a puddle of gore when everything came back to life. And the interesting thing about that, again, I'm going to bring stuff from the book in, is these are Walter Murch's decisions. There are implications in the book about this. Princess Mombi, as she appears in Return to Oz, is basically a conglomeration of two characters. One who is named Mombi, and then the other one is, uh, I think it's Langadier. I'm probably getting that wrong. Should have written it down. But the point is, um, Mombi the Witch implies in the second book that she can turn people to stone. And then in the third book, you have the princess who can shift different heads, but she's not portrayed as something, I don't know, she's not particularly scary. She's more lazy than anything. And the place that has been taken over is a different kingdom than Oz. So it's not coming to Oz and finding there are stone statues everywhere. It's coming to Ev, the kingdom of Ev, and then finding that... 
the royal family's been stolen, but everybody in the place is more or less okay. So it's it's him unintentionally or not taking the material and then pushing it to a darker direction. And it makes sense. Let's introduce Oz again. Let's not return to the land of Oz, but then never go to Oz, you know? So, but it's him that basically decides to put it in this post-apocalyptic Oz setting that didn't really exist in either book's situation. So I was kind of curious, did that sort of choosing to make Oz a post-apocalyptic setting with the statues, did that lend itself more to horror for you? If you, if they did a full transition from the book, translation of the book, and said that it's a different kingdom and we didn't have people turned to stone, it's just the royal family that's been taken, would that have felt different? I I think it actually does make it a little bit more frightening uh, horror-wise, but more so in the context of, like, if you're looking at it as a direct sequel to the 1939 movie and you're thinking, okay, well, this used to be, like, a Technicolor rainbow vomit and now it's, like, this destroyed kingdom. I think it... And then you have the wheelers roaming through it. So I do think uh, that choice of setting definitely does lend itself more towards the horror feel, uh, the frightening feel. It, it does kind of feel like a dark fantasy sort of thing, like Dark Souls, like Mitz has said a couple times too. Uh, but yeah, that, that that setting definitely is a, is a big, has a big effect on how you feel during that portion of the film. I think it helped with that feeling too. Like when you first, when, you know, she first gets to Oz and starts walking around and seeing statues and whatnot, uh, there's, there's kind of a disconnect there. At least for me, there was like, it was like, Oh, whatever. It's a statue. Um, I think it would have had a bigger impact if you would have maybe seen them like getting turned into statues, but then it does like, show you the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion. And it's like, those are characters you know, even if they look slightly different. But like that kind of brings it back to just making it a little more real feeling for, or that it would feel more real to her, I guess. What elements of the film felt the most horror or perhaps the most scary, most disturbing to each of you? Headless Mombi. True. Um, definitely the wheelers, as we've mentioned, and also I really did not like the faces on the rock. I know that's kind of a mild one, but I don't. I didn't like it. Yeah, the the gnomes and the gnome king. Right. Yeah, they're a little unsettling. The king himself wasn't too scary because he he had more of a human look. I just didn't like the faces on the rocks. I I think the scenes like in the mental hospital or whatever were the most horror-like both in tone and in like the musical choices there and the feeling that the actors are portraying. Yeah, I think definitely that opening sequence that probably is the sequence that lends itself most to horror. I tend to associate post-apocalypses with horror stories, even though they're not, you know, 100% the domain of horror. 
but usually if I'm watching something post-apocalyptic, it is horror, so I tend to associate that more. So her first arrival and looking at the ruins of Oz and trying to figure out what happened, I guess that had a pretty strong sort of post-apocalyptic feel to me too, even down to finding TikTok and then having him like covered with cobwebs. It's just like a relic of this lost world. And how quickly it happened, I guess, if you think about it, because I don't know how long ago Dorothy is supposed to have gotten back, but it couldn't have been very long ago because I think she's still supposed to be, in terms of this, like nine in the first adventure and nine in this one as well. So it's like within within a year maybe of each other. I mean, they're still building their house, you know? I got the impression that it was sort of a like Chronicles of Narnia type thing where time moves different here. So mm-hmm. it yeah. may have been longer in Oz. That's fair. I think the actual timing on it was that she got taken to Oz the first time in April 1899, and this film was set in October 1899, according to IMDb. So it's supposed to have only been uh, about like six months past in her time. Okay. But that makes sense, though, that more time might have passed there. I don't think that they give you a a framework to pull from there as far as that, unless there's something you guys noticed, I guess. I don't remember, like, anyone in Oz talking about the time frame. I'm not sure why exactly I felt that way, but I, I guess that made sense to me with, like, especially with, like, how she finds TikTok and that kind of thing and just, like, feeling that not all this could have happened in what would have been a short time period for her. And then all of her companions are in no position to tell her what time it was. TikTok was basically for all intents and purposes dead during it. And then uh, Jack was up in the attic for who knows how long for whenever that happened. So closed off and the gump just came to life during the film. So he's got nothing to add. Right. Right. Okay. Let's, uh, I guess unless anyone wants to add to that, we can move on to the uh, children and horror section. Okay, so the thing he said about that was, the other decision that I made for creative reasons was Dorothy was not a 15-year-old pretending to be a 9-year-old. It was a real 9-year-old girl. If it's a 15-year-old girl pretending to be younger, you say, well, it's just pretend. Okay, so... How did that decision end up affecting it for everyone? Does the decision to use an actual nine-year-old for Dorothy increase the tension of the darker moments rather than, say, having a 15-year-old pretending to be younger, like in the 39 film? For me, yes. And two two specific examples I can think of is the beginning when she's in the um, asylum and she's running away from the asylum and falling in the river and then later being found next to the river by her family spoilers if you haven't seen the movie <laughs> um she, just the thought of a of a young kid running away and having to go through that falling in a river and being an escapee from a place she was supposed to be safe is tense i think because it would be a tense situation in real life to find out that your kid went missing and in within Oz, um, I felt like her age as to the naivete of her character because, you know, when they were approaching 
the Gnome King, she was like, well, I'm going to fight you with my army. And that kind of like young confidence, I think, added to the tension too. You're like, oh, bless your heart, sweetie. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) One of the things I thought about with that is like, I think there's kind of a weird duality to to it because you get that type of thing with her well like i do like i was more worried for her i think but because of that like kind of you know false confidence of of children's like it it also sort of lessens the tension a little bit in some situations not in the one you mentioned but like even when she like approaches tiktok or some of the other random weird looking creatures like uh and you know an adult or even like the 15 year old uh, pretending to be a nine year old react reacts a little differently to it where she just like has that sort of very believable, very believable confidence of a child. And just is like, I accept this weird thing for whatever it is without any pre like preconceptions about that. I should be scared of it or not. It's a good point. I think a perfect example of this, uh, if anybody is a Walking Dead fan and you've read the Walking Dead comics and you've watched the show, the Walking Dead comics, I think, arguably focus uh, on the the character Carl, who in the comics is like a nine, ten year old boy. Like, I think he starts out as like six or seven years old. And I would say the tone of the Walking Dead comics is a lot more terrifying when it focuses on Carl because he's a child in those situations for me versus in the TV show. Uh, Obviously I understand the creative reasons behind him growing up with the show and basically being like a 16, 17 year old kid by the time he reaches his peak in the show. Um, But yeah, it's definitely feels a lot more horror when you're reading that comic because he's younger uh, than when you're watching the show and he's this much older uh, teenager. And I think that's the same for this. So did you ever feel like Dorothy was in real danger here? Or do we get to the same sort of promise that I, I guess at least I think is exists for fantasy films where eventually good is going to win and probably Dorothy is going to be part of that? I think children's horror offers that same promise and because of that i never did really feel like she was in that much danger and i always you know i had no doubt that it was going to be a happy ending i knew dorothy would be okay but i wasn't sure about her sidekicks i didn't i wasn't sure if they were going to go back for tiktok i thought he might have been like lost in the abyss so i wasn't worried about dorothy but i was at some moments worried about her traveling buddies so there was at least some real stakes for them for you yes i was reasonably worried that jack pumpkinhead was going to get offed that he was actually going to get eaten by what's his face in that scene i felt like the movie had done enough at that point to put me in doubt as to whether he was going to survive that That's fair, because, you know, I grew up watching this as a kid, as mentioned earlier, so I knew kind of where everybody ended up. But trying to think about it in terms of if I was seeing this for the first time, I think that makes sense, too, because they sort of make these arguments like they personify these characters to a bit, to a degree. But 
most of her traveling companions, it's kind of hard to say that they're alive exactly. I mean, you got the Gump kind of not wanting to a degree to be alive almost. And so, yeah, it makes them feel a little bit more expendable possibly. Possibly. I think for the the Jack part, like the only thing that kept me from feeling like that in the moment was that uh, the chicken was in his head and they kept like playing with that or like, you know, sneaking in bits. Oh, like, does she have the chicken with her or that kind of thing? And it's that just like gave you kind of this subtle promise that the chicken was important for some reason. And Jack has that ace up his sleeve or chicken in his head, so to speak, that he's he'll probably be okay um but i did i guess i did think like the gump was maybe going to be a goner several times maybe because of what you said steve is like he didn't really act like he wanted to be alive and you know tiktok prides himself on not being alive so i guess since we're kind of already leading into that that's a good lead into talking about just the companions that dorothy has as well um do you want to hit up that next one for us? Sure. Yeah, so Walter Murch's quote uh, on this, on the companions, is he says, Toto gets left behind and is replaced by a chicken. And chickens, as charming as chickens can be, I'm a big chicken fan. I'll say that as him and as myself. Uh, back to this <laughs> quote. They are not cuddly creatures in the same way that a cute dog is cuddly. And a robot TikTok is different than a man pretending to be a tin man with a painted face. And Jack Pumpkinhead is a pumpkin, and pumpkins are made to scare you on Halloween. And he's got this sort of grin, even though his voice is very nice, Brian Henson's voice. It's still a little scary. So there's kind of the question of those. So we're looking at all of Dorothy's traveling companions, do they end up feeling kind of creepy compared to what you're seeing in the 39 film? Uh, all of them with their different quirks, maybe not being quite alive, not just their sort of warped nature in a lot of ways. How do they come across? How do they add to or take away from the horror feeling of the film? I guess that kind of addresses what I was saying earlier about how Jack... Uh sometimes looks like a marionette and sometimes is a guy in a suit. I think uh, it seems to me that his intention was to definitely preserve the illusion that this isn't a guy in a suit. So I think that's why they were very careful when it is a guy in a suit for the filming process that it's not super obvious. So that's why in some of those scenes they make it this impossible creature to have somebody in a suit be in there it looks like it's actually something different but I, I i don't really think he's creepy for that honestly he does look like he's not human but i wouldn't say he's creepy the only one who creeps me out is the scarecrow because he looks like a sesame street character and i don't i just i'm just not digging it <laughs> <laughs> But I, it's sad to say that because I'm pretty sure that is exactly what, I'm pretty sure the the design for the characters in this, in this film, as opposed to the original, are based off illustrations from the original books. Like if you look up any of these characters, they look exactly like they do in this film. 
and not the original. So this is probably the original design. Like this is the original design for the scarecrow, but it's just, I don't like it. It creeps me out. Yeah, a hundred percent. You're right on that. Just looking at, they really went to pains to make the, the characters look like the original illustrations. It's kind of, it's fun to compare the two. I might have to put that up on the Instagram when we post this. Yeah, I mean, even in that quote, he says that he was trying to convince you that it's not people in costumes, that it's that it's actually these things. So that was definitely a specific choice that he made. I think they are inherently more creepy than the original companions, for sure. Uh, I guess it kind of comes back to what I said, I guess, a little bit about that, about... Uh, Dorothy's reaction to them kind of diffusing their creepiness a little bit for me at least because she just and I think it's it's really it's really a good attribute for her and really telling of her I guess but she just uh, despite them seeming creepy despite what they may or may not be she just accepts them immediately for what they are and isn't scared of them Um, so I guess for me that I mean, you see this like giant pumpkin guy who's, you know, tall and has this creepy looking pumpkin head, but she just uh, is like, well, oh, how can I help you? Let me help you put your legs back together. Like there's, she's has zero concern about him. At least that was the impression that I had. So then it tells you as the viewer that, oh, all right, they're okay. You don't need to worry about them or that. I guess that was how I felt about it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Her reactions to the world inform you as the audience how you ought to feel about it. So even if there are some unsettling vibes about some of her traveling companions, her just acceptance of them helps to diffuse that to a degree. So I think I can see his point in making that if you're maybe a child who is watching this and you're not thinking about it on that level maybe you'd find them unsettling without caring what the story had to say about it but as an adult you're watching it and her acceptance of them for me anyway diffuses any sort of unsettling features of any of her her friends okay and then uh let's head into the final point that he made about that all right and Walter has a quote here about Dorothy's guardians in the film. So he says, So the scary sub-basement of the sub-basement of the story is grown-ups can hurt you potentially while trying to help you. That even though grown-ups sometimes have the best intentions and sometimes they don't, because what is the doctor and the nurse? What are their intentions? But even your guardian can mistakenly harm you and you have to defend yourself. And this is that message that I overtly wanted to put in the film to make kids realize that that is some circumstances. Sometimes in life you're on your own and even the people who are there to protect you. Things can go funny sometimes, so you have to be on alert. So we've talked about the intro quite a bit already, but at least to talk about it through this particular lens of things, does the idea that Dorothy can't maybe trust her aunt and uncle to keep her safe as a nine-year-old up the horror tone of the film. See, this this is kind of a 
something that Matt and I also talked about during watching the film. And it's also a conversation we've had on, on the podcast previously where you have to kind of think like, is this actually happening to Dorothy? Is any of this really happening? Is this a real world and she is actually going there? Or is she actually dealing with the psychological aftermath of, you know, tornado or whatever? She's actually disturbed. Because in that case, that kind of changes how her aunt and uncle react to her. Like, maybe they... Of course, their intentions are to help her. Um, but, of course, at this time period, the help that she would be getting is not actually helpful. So, but also, I don't ever think that she shows that she doesn't trust them specifically. She's just upset that she, they don't believe her. But it's the idea that maybe she can't trust them, even if she does, that maybe she shouldn't. Does that idea, does that come across to you? Do you feel like that's present? Or, and if it is, does that affect how you view it? I feel like that comes more from the staff at the hospital. Like, these are adults. I am here to be cared for, but I don't feel safe. And I think that does add to the psychological horror of it. I think as far for me, as far as, uh, you know, the aunt and uncle part of it goes, uh, and, and him saying very, like, he o- overtly put this in there, um, it's more of it, it lends itself more to like a life lesson to me than necessarily something trying to scare you. It feels more like him saying like, look, adults are just people and they screw up sometimes. Like, and even if they have good intentions, they, they can't necessarily always do what's right or always protect you. And I guess, so with that in mind, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make it more horror for me, I guess. Um, I mean, it does end up meaning that she, that Dorothy has to kind of be on her own and maybe that's a little scarier, but again, maybe that's just a little more of a, I don't know, life lesson and self-reliance type of thing. But then she, you know, goes to Oz and then gets a bunch of people to, or a bunch of things to help her. She gets her entourage. So I don't know. Just gonna say, I honestly really didn't think about that portion of it while I was watching it. But I guess if the film continued the way that the first act was kind of going, uh, and she, and it took more of a darker tone, and she didn't, and stick stuck with like the horror feeling, then maybe, uh, that would have lent itself more to the hopelessness of her situation that sometimes arises in a horror film. Uh, but I didn't really think about it that much at the time when it was happening. So Mitz brought up a point that I guess you guys had talked about before recording, and I was curious to get everyone's feedback. Do you feel like, I guess twofold question, do you feel the intent of the film was that her journey in Oz actually happened? And regardless of that intent, do you feel like the movie plays feels like her journey to Oz really happens. I think that's a good question. And one of the the things about it is the, I mean, we read it, the back of the box description, like it even starts 
like that says, you know, clearly like this is the land of her dreams. And so I don't know, that makes it feel like it's not really happening. I, you know, I guess it, it feels similar to a lot of these types of, um, you know, children's fantasies type things. Uh, you know, you get it in Chronicles of Narnia, you get it in, uh, you know, even Pan's Labyrinth and things like that, where you do have to question, is this just like a imaginary world? I, I guess I, it's one of those, like, I want to believe that it's a, a real thing and it's really happened to her. Uh, but I, I think for, well, not, but I, I guess for, I, for my part, I just, I guess I can't be sure. In the original movie and in this movie, both of her visits to Oz are a result of her undergoing some kind of like physical trauma to the head or something. First tornado now being swept away in a river and she wakes up in recovery from that trauma. So I think it's on, I think it's actually is all in her dreams. But it's very real for her, I guess. With that in mind, I guess at the like very end, she goes back to the house and then she sees Ozma in the mirror. And so is that like, maybe that's the lead into the horror about it is like she's she's seeing things maybe for the rest of her life now. <laughs> yeah. I I was going to say, I think you could sort of categorize it as she's dealing with this deep emotional trauma. First, the deep emotional trauma of this storm and losing everything that she holds dear. And then how her mind is sort of uh, helping her to cope with that situation. And then the second one, how she's been suffering from PTSD of that situation the entire time and being gaslit by her family and then dropped off at this mental asylum, essentially. Uh, and then her going back into that reclusive, safe space in her mind uh, because she has no other way of coping with the reality of this situation as a nine-year-old. <laughs> Shout out to all my maladaptive daydreamers out there. I got you. <laughs> yeah. She's she's like this this movie is the maladaptive daydreaming movie. <laughs> yes. And that's I think that's an excellent point too is that you run the situation if it didn't happen there are some really dark implications at the end of the film of like okay uh my life didn't get better and the best I can do is escape further into this fantasy world that I just hope exists because I can't take reality anymore and it's just like you could see a version of this this film followed with this thread later where, you know, she's in her 20s and she's just stuck in an asylum and doesn't know what's real anymore, you know? Just looking for every mirror, like, oh yeah, that's the that's the girl in number nine. Go ahead and keep her away from any mirrors. She'll just, she'll stare at it for hours. She'd sometimes get psychotic if you try and break her away from it. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not funny. I shouldn't laugh. Well, it is. I mean, I mean it to be a little <laughs> bit funny. <laughs> I, but like in reality. 
Yeah, I mean, if that really did happen, that's some dark implications, right? So I don't know. At right. least for my money, anyway, I look at the film and I feel like that last mirror sequence is um, Walter Murch's way of saying to us, yes, it did happen. It is real. Here's some proof for you. And I prefer, I guess, to interpret the film that way. I So that's the way I look at it. But I can't say that anyone's wrong, especially when they're pulling the same thing they did in the 39 film, where... And and again, this is a film choice of the people who made the 39 film, not something in the book, where each of the characters that she meets in Oz have a corollary in the real world. And they do that just with the villains in this version of the film. So in some ways, I guess that's kind of an interesting idea of like all the all the evil things she sees exist. But also it makes sense of how they would be adapted in her mind if it was imaginary, right? Because she's got the Gnome King. He seems like he rules this place as the same as the doctor of the asylum there. And then his hench lady is control of the one wheeler there who's wheeling the cart with a squeaky wheel. Like everything that you'd need psychologically to put together this nightmare after you get swept away in the river is all there. But... um the book doesn't have those elements of those correlated people. So I guess, again, I think it's taking cues from the original that way, but I think the intent is still that it actually happened. I think uh, you kind of have to look at it as two completely different universes slash stories between the book and the film. And uh, in a way, as the consumer of the media, you kind of get to decide what it, actually was to you so end of the day it's whatever people decide to perceive it as i think yeah i agree you have to take it on its own terms regardless of what other material might exist and i guess now that having been said a lot of walter murch's analysis of why people perceived his version of the oz story to be scary as opposed to the 39 film uh, but are there any things that you think that he missed? Anything that, about this film that lends itself towards horror that influenced your decision on it that maybe we haven't talked about, that he hasn't maybe even thought about? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it being his film, and he, at the time of this interview, he had a lot of time to think it over, and I think he did a really good job of kind of self-analyzing uh well the movie and his own intentions on it uh so yeah it, it, like you've already said i think it was it's a really good interview and worth watching yeah for me the only thing he didn't explicitly mention that i thought was worth exploring is just the post-apocalyptic setting but i brought it up as we talked about it so i think there's he didn't have to do it that way and filtering it through that lens and then of course having that intro the way that it did. Yeah, I think those are things that just lended itself more towards it. But yeah, I really enjoyed his kind of just level of self-analysis on all of it. It was really interesting to see that in terms of what we're doing here. Any other thoughts on the movie at all? It really feels like this movie maybe influenced a lot of people um in certain ways or maybe there was like concurrent influences because i guess this was in 1985 uh and stephen king had already written a good portion of the dark tower by this point i guess right yeah he would have written i want to well 
I should see when those came out, but I want to say he definitely had two books done before this, maybe three. Yeah. Um, so definitely I could, I could see how this really fits in with like those, with dark fantasy kind of epic fantasy novels and other stories of the time. And that whole trope of returning back to, the ruined kingdom and figuring out what poisoned the realm kind of a thing. I mean, you see that in just so many different fantasy books uh, and stories. So I just wanted to highlight on it that. It was and eggs. It was eggs. Eggs, eggs poisoned, poisoned the realm. Yep. <laughs> it's actually a and vegan propaganda film. <laughs> exactly. This was made by the vegan teacher. This was a pita uh, film. Yeah. What about a nice egg salad? Hey, don't yoke about that. No, no egg salad. Poison! <laughs> I guess just to give the date on it, only one book had come out at that point, just The Gunslinger. The next book came out in 87, so this was a couple years previous to that. Yeah, so I, I definitely feel... I mean, obviously Stephen King was influenced by this, not even just in The Dark Tower, but in other of his, others of his novels. Um, but I think that you can definitely see how this fits into fantasy. And that's all I really wanted to say is, uh, this feels like it has a lot of the quintessential elements of fantasy, uh, along with some of the horror aspects that we've talked about. But I, I thought it was a pretty cool movie in, in that way. Not to get like overly long on the subject, but I think something that maybe we don't always do is just to say, and you've already said your piece on that, is just, did everybody enjoy the movie? Did you like it? Would you watch it again? Would you recommend it to people? It being my first time, um, I liked it. It was one, like, as a, as a kid, um, I remember people saying that it was creepy and that it was scary, and that was one of the reasons I think I didn't end up seeing it as a kid as just because at that time in my life I didn't want to watch scary movies so I stayed away from it uh, but uh, I now seeing it um, I did enjoy it I think it's a really done, well done movie and yeah yeah it was good if you haven't seen it go see it I know myself and I know I would have hated this as a child. Uh, it was also my first time watching it. I would have not liked it as a child, but I liked it now. Um, there was a lot of, even though I did say I was disturbed by a lot of things, there was also a lot of things that I was intrigued and that I found wholesome. Like I really, I would watch it again just for TikTok and, and Jack because I liked them a lot as characters. <laughs> Do we hit on everything you found disturbing about the film? Honestly, I think so. The only other thing I can think of is, I guess we didn't talk about the Gnome King that much, but when he was, you know, going to eat Jack Pumpkinhead and he opened his mouth extremely wide. Ugh. Yucky. <laughs> Yucky. Yucky. Just the pit of fire of his stomach down there somewhere. Yeah, that would I. It's just, it's just freaky. His his gnome bussy. <laughs> oh my god. 
electric chair. <laughs> um, I was also going to mention that I forgot, but um, Stephen King had to be influenced in the in his Beasts and the Dark Tower by TikTok and his his like strange industrial label about him. Like, come on. <laughs> so yeah, if you're a fan of Stephen King, that had to be like straight lifted or straight influenced by from this movie. That's true, and you don't see that stuff until you get to uh the Wastelands, which is that the Dark Tower, the third book, The Wastelands, comes out in ninety one. So I mean that's a good six years after this film for him to have seen it ruminated on it and maybe decide to like some of that kind of weird retro steampunk stuff. And I can't remember if I saw this as a hundred percent for certain, but I think that I even saw somewhere that they were talking about the idea of maybe TikTok being one of the maybe first out and out robots in fiction, because I think his first appearance would have been maybe 1907, I think. So anyway, that's just kind of interesting trivia. I should just go ahead and look up exactly what that date is. So I'm not just guessing because I do have all of the world's knowledgefulness here at my fingertips. Uh, yeah, he was introduced in 1907 was when the book that featured him came out. Interesting. Everything I know about Oz comes from reading because I haven't really read all the Oz series books. But I have read the Gregory Maguire Wicked series in which he like elaborates on the lore of Oz. And I'm sure there's massive crossover between that series and Dark Tower as well. Yeah, I need to check that out, especially after all of this. I think the other thing that's funny too is I heard some of the way that people put it is like this was the Harry Potter of their time. Like everyone knew about this. There was stage yeah. plays almost immediately. Kids were writing begging for more installments of this. Like if you were a kid in turn of the century United States, you knew about the Wizard of Oz. You had an opinion about it, you know? But anyway, at least as far as for me, I yeah, I would I really like this movie growing up. There's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in it for me. I still feel like it kind of it holds up for the most part. It's it's worth a watch. So I would recommend it. Oh, we didn't even yo, we didn't even talk about how fabulous the Gnome King looked in the ruby red slippers. What the fuck? How oh, he, oh was, he did. He pulled it. I wasn't fully <laughs> expecting him to like open up his robe and have like a sexy corset underneath. To yeah, match we were going to go for full Rocky Horror. Yeah, <laughs> he did kill in those, and it's funny too because they're they're not ruby slippers in the books; they're silver slippers, and he doesn't even have them in the book. He has a belt, so he would have had like a cool silver belt to go with the cool ruby slippers if they'd done that. I really did not expect him to lift up his robes and be wearing those slippers. <laughs> you know, it's a little different, but I have I it reminded me of one of the old like Christmas Carol movies. Oh, and I think this is how it was in the books too, but you have like the ghost of Christmas present like lift up his robe and you're like, "What is he doing?" and there's like two kids underneath there. Uh but and then you're really like, "What is he doing?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was gonna say it kind of, yeah, like it kind of gave off like heat miser vibes, like with the claymation kind of stuff going on too. Yeah, good times, guys. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Um, thank you for joining us on another episode of Is It Horror? The next episode, we're going to try to kind of do a little bit of what we did last year. So last year we did a non-horror movie entirely. We did Die Hard and we talked about whether or not it was a Christmas film. And so we're going to kind of have our cake and eat it too this year because in two weeks we're going to be doing A Nightmare Before Christmas where we will talk about not only is it horror, but also is it a Christmas movie or is it a Halloween movie? And so we'll discuss both. Obviously we're putting our thumb on the scales a little bit by saying that we're going to talk about around Christmas, but maybe we'll come out the other way. You never know. So join us back here for then. I have been Steve. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I am Mitz. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. There's no place like the end of the episode. There's no place like the end of the episode. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes? Or did you just want to say hi? If so, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Is It Horror Pod. Or you can email us at isithorrorpodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is it horror?